From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey for this year is on hold. The acting director of the Office of Personnel Management, Michael Regas, writes to agency leaders that the new start date will be September 14th. GovExec reports, Regas writes, the reason for the delay is, quote, to support your critical agency missions, as well as maximize employee participation. The Pentagon's Director of, De of Defense Research and Engineering for Modernization will step up to the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering job temporarily. Mark Lewis will take the place of Mike Griffin. He and Deputy Lisa Porter left their jobs June 23rd. Defense News reports no one signaled whether Lewis is a candidate for the Undersecretary or Deputy job permanently. Medical professionals are treating a group of about two dozen sailors and civilians in San Diego after a fire aboard the USS Bonhomme Richard. 160 sailors were on board the ship moored at Naval Base San Diego when someone called in the fire. USNI News reports none of the injuries are life-threatening. No word yet on the extent of damage to the ship. The National Archives and Records Administration is building a cloud-to-cloud -cloud transfer infrastructure. Its goal is to make it easier for agencies to transfer records from their own clouds to a National Archives cloud. It is part of a digitization effort that's driven by the law that ends paper record transfers in the next three years. Leslie Johnston is Director of Digital Preservation at NARA. Leslie, thanks very much for coming on the program. What does the transition look like? How is the digital preservation framework that you're building helping all of this to, to be facilitated? Sure. So our digital preservation framework is one that describes what sort of electronic records file formats, and so that's things that are either born digital, like a Word file or an Excel file or a database, or records that have been digitized from their original format. What sort of formats are the most sustainable, the most easily preserved? What sort of risks are associated with them? And how we're managing the ones that we have in our holdings. So the goal for the framework is both to share what we've already learned about what we have in our holdings and what decisions we've made, but to provide information to federal agencies and other cultural heritage institutions about what formats are the best for storing their records or other information and how they might sustain them over time. I imagine you just have tons of different formats coming in here. One thing that federal agencies have been good at over the last 50 to 75 years of digital creation is creating things in a million different ways without really checking with each other to see what the standards are or if there even are standards. Is that part of this effort, uh, of this framework, to create those standards, or is that an independent effort, Leslie? It's independent but also related. Uh, NARA has long provided guidance for federal agencies about sustainable file formats. We started receiving electronic records from agencies in 1970, so we have been doing this for 50 years. In 2014, we issued greatly expanded guidance that covers a wide variety of types of records from textual formats to image to video to audio 
database GIS because every agency does their business a different way using different types of systems and tools. And we in no way want to change how agencies do their work on a daily basis. What we want to do is help them store those records when they're doing their own records management. And when it's time for those records to move over to NARA, for them to come over in the most sustainable formats possible. So that's the goal of both our guidance and this digital preservation framework. What's the role of the cloud here, Leslie? What does that cloud to cloud transfer that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation look like? And what's the benefit that an agency realizes when they are able to participate in it? Well, one of the things that we know about the work of the federal government is that a lot of that work is already happening in the cloud. It could be something as simple as they store some of their files in an Amazon storage cloud, or they could be working in systems that are vendor systems, such as you know, HR systems or content management systems or web management systems. They're already in the cloud. So the benefit is one of risk reduction because preservation of these records really depends on the reduction and mitigation of risk. Every time you export files from a system, move it onto media, transfer media, you know, copy it again, each one of those steps brings about the risk of corruption of those files. So if we can bring our services to the cloud where the agencies are already working and storing their records, then that will actually mitigate the risk of having to copy and move those files so many times, and it will make for an easier process once that process is in production. What do agencies need to do, Leslie, to be well-equipped, to be completely prepared to do this kind of record transition? I think the agencies actually are already ready, already prepared in the sense that they're already doing excellent records management. They're already managing both physical and electronic collections every day. And as long as they are managing their records, keeping track of them, have an active management and preservation program where they are updating their storage and updating their file formats over time in the preparation to send their records to NARA, they're already mostly there. This is just adding a couple of technical steps to a process that they're already successfully doing. Um, we just have a minute or so left, Leslie, and it sounds like in addition to the agencies already doing these steps, when they follow these extra steps, they'll save themselves a tremendous amount of time and risk on the back end. Am I hearing that right? Absolutely, because when people ask me what digital preservation is, I always tell them that it's really thinking about the worst thing that can happen to your files and records and keeping that from happening. So any process or technology that we can put into place on the back end that helps the records managers do a better job, then that's great for both the agencies and for the National Archives. Leslie Johnston of NARA, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate your time. Up next, a new report card for new IT and new relationships in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the coronavirus effect on Fatara and the players that execute it. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Congress will release the 10th edition of the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act scorecard this month. The coronavirus has drawn attention to the need for IT modernization in government, and some members of Congress are taking notice. Dave Pounder is Director of Strategic Engagement and Partnerships at MITRE, former Director of IT Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on. A couple of things bubbling under, as our colleague and friend Jason Miller reports in the Federal News Network. What do you see as the most important things to watch as we approach the release of the 10th edition of the Vitara Scorecard, Dave? Well, you know, similar to some of the conversations we've had in the past, Francis, you know, we're now, what, five and a half years uh, post-Vitara passing and the 10th Scorecard. I expect this scorecard will be very similar to the ones we've had in the past. But uh, we are hearing some chatter that there likely is going to be a discussion about how that scorecard could evolve going forward. And, uh, and I think that's very important. If you look at the seven areas that are graded, there's five where we've seen significant progress. Uh, there's two working capital funds in cyber. Uh, we clearly need to, to make more progress in those areas. But I do think there's some big challenges out there when you look at legacy modernization. Some of that has come to light with the uh, COVID-19 response that, uh, that are good candidates for possibly inclusion on a future scorecard. And I think the key question on how this evolves is, does the transparency and metrics that we've used on the scorecard previously, would that help benefit other areas to move the ball forward? All right, a couple of big thinkers in addition to yourself that Jason talked to, and I wanna get your feedback on some ideas that they had that sounded pretty good to me. Jonathan Album, the former CIO at the Agriculture Department, now with ServiceNow, said an interesting data point would be the percentage of IT budget directly appropriated by the department CIO relative to the overall IT spend. We're finding that the visibility is okay. The approval isn't actually as good as it could be, right, Dave? Yeah, that's true. So, you know, Jonathan's point, that, that that's a very solid point when you look at, you know, what percentage of bu the budget they currently control. There's also this question about the budget in general, irregardless of who controls it. Uh, I, I think there's also a big question, the percent of budget, your IT budget compared to your overall agency budget. When you look across agencies, that varies greatly. And the other thing I think that COVID really exposed too is, there was a lot of money thrown at uh, some of the tech problems, you know, for scalability and other things and some of the demands that we wouldn't have expected. But I do think when you look at the response to COVID, the question becomes, you know, really what, do, and, and, and some of this were, were Band-Aids, right, to keep things going. But the other thing, it was an opportunity for some agencies to truly modernize. And I think when you look at the modernization, uh, there's a fundamental question, do, do the agency's IT budgets truly reflect their IT needs for modernization? And I think uh, if we really looked long and hard at that, that we, we would probably see some more increases in some of those IT budgets. You know, COVID was a good opportunity for agencies to jumpstart some of their modernization efforts in, in addition to putting Band-Aids on a few things. But I think that's really the whole budget situation and where we're at and what it takes to truly modernize. Hopefully there's some lessons learned looking back on the pandemic experience. So nobody knows this scorecard, I don't think, the way that you know this scorecard, Dave. To your point then about how these, these purchases sync up with the overall IT strategy of an organization, 
where on the scorecard now or where on the scorecard in the future could be the grade for execution of a strategy? Or is that even possible? Is maybe the idea of a strategy too objective to, or subjective to start off with to make it objective and then gradable? Well, I, I think there are some key areas when you look at the strategy. So if you look, if you had a category, for instance, you could break your strategy down on mission modernization, you know, where you have your top uh, acquisitions that you're modernizing to, and does that result in uh, retirement of legacy systems and a better customer experience? So there's a mission modernization category that you could move the ball forward looking at you know, these big acquisitions, retirement of the old legacy stuff that's difficult to maintain and insecure, but also to improving the customer experience. You know, from a budgeting point of view, we already have on the scorecard the working capital funds, but I think there's a larger story when you look at the challenges of federal CIOs. Uh, working capital funds is important, but you could also look at TBM. Are we capturing all of our spend? And or do we really have an IT budget that's reflective of our IT needs? So there's a couple ways that we could go forward tackling some of these big things that you cover quite frequently, Francis. But I think an important, uh, an important point here is irregardless of where this goes, there's one person in the driver's seat, that's Chairman Connolly, right? He's going to want to make sure he's very comfortable with this. And you also are going to need to get OMB on board because much of what the scorecard, uh, how they grade today, there's a lot of OMB data. So there might be additional data calls coming out of OMB where the legislative branch is going to need to get in sync with OMB if there's some significant modifications and evolution of the scorecard. There is always much, much more that I would like to talk about than time to talk about it with you, Dave. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Francis. Up next, a government-wide acquisition contract scrapped. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the General Services Administration will pick up the pieces and the path forward for small business. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The General Services Administration has canceled its Alliant II small business contract. It sent out the notice ahead of the 4th of July holiday weekend. GSA canceled the contract after it worked on it for nearly four years. Nick Wakeman is editor of Washington Technology and writing about the cancellation. So you ask in the headline of your piece a rhetorical question along the lines of, is GSA ashamed of canceling Alliant II? What's your answer to your own question, Nick? You think they are? I think a little bit. I think they were just hoping that the bad news would get kind of, you know, lost or just uh, kind of disappear a little bit get, uh, over the over the long weekend. Ashamed might be too strong a word, but I think they definitely uh, wanted to go away. It was this inevitable, though. I mean, this this thing has had challenges for I mean, almost the entire four years that it's been in the pipeline something after something after something seemed to happen. Is this kind of not surprising to you that this that they decided to pull yeah. the plug on this? Yeah, I, I think they, they really had no no choice. They uh, um, 
No, you said, I mean, I think the first awards were the end of 2017 and then they, uh, you know, got hit with protests and then they made a second round of awards and more protests. It just, you know, just this snowball effect. It just couldn't get out, get out the door. It just couldn't get out of its own way. And then, uh, you know, they had protests at GAO and then they had protests that went over to the, uh, uh, U.S. Court of Federal Claims. And that's, that's really where, where the, uh, kind of the last straw was when the court ruled against GSA and said, you know, you can't do this. It was, and it was sort of a, you know, what sounds like a technical issue with how they were evaluating uh, like the cost accounting systems. And they were putting more weight on those and they said they would in the solicitation. And uh, the court said, no, you can't do that. So you have to start over. And then we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And they, you know, just in limbo. And so they finally just said that ah, it's over. Emily Murphy was on the program on Sunday morning uh, talking about what the landscape looks like moving forward for small businesses. What are the small businesses that you talk to saying they need, maybe not as far as actual contract vehicles, but just from signals about how to move forward from GSA? What are they looking for, Nick? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of frustration. They've spent a lot of money pursuing uh, pursuing Alliant too. Um, and so all that, those resources and time are just, are just wasted. Um, I think they want more communication. I think they want, you know, there was just silence from GSA from August until the cancellation, practically. Um, you, you did see a few little signs that, that something was up. I think when they extended the, uh, in, in, increased the ceiling and kind of ex extended that made those adjustments to the, uh, um, the STARS 8A vehicle, you know, you had to wonder, okay, they were doing more of that. At first, it seemed like they were just doing that to uh, to make sure they had that transition period between STARS 2 and STARS 3. But in hindsight, I think they were trying to add that to, to kind of fill the gap as they worked on whatever will replace Alliant 2. But I think that's what they want. I think they want more communication, more, you know, just more openness, more transparency. Have the companies that you've been talking to, Nick, indicated their views on why they think something like STARS is working and Alliant 2 didn't really? Yeah, that's a great question. And nobody really knows. I mean, there's it, it does get down into sort of like the nitty gritty uh, legal aspects of these contracts. And I think um, STARS 2 was you know, it was focused on 8A, so they knew what those companies should look like, where Alliant 2 is so broad, and I think there have been a lot of questions on, you know, joint ventures, what that means, what's an alliance, what's a partnership, um, what counts, what doesn't count, where with STARS 2, I think it was a much more focused vehicle. Because one of the things that Emily talked about was that idea that we could see more for each of these different companies that fit into different places in the ecosystem, and I guess the challenge that GSA is walking is how do you avoid doing 15 different vehicles for all of these different categories of companies? How do you do something that's usable for the agencies, but also the small business, you know, facilitates the needs of the small businesses, as you, as you just outlined? That's the big challenge, isn't it, Nick? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, that really hurt Alliant uh, Small Business, you know, Alliant 2 was that there was so much in it and so many companies, they had, you know, 500 some companies bid on it. 
And so that's going to, you know, and you, and they started off, I think, with 61 awards, then 81. But there's still a lot of companies that, you know, are kind of out in the cold um, because the trend has been to these big IDIQs, these big GWACs, where if you're not on that vehicle, you're kind of shut out as far as being a prime goes. And so I think if they break them up somehow, maybe not, you know, won't be as many as 15, but um, I think have, you know, an 8A vehicle, they, they have vets, which is for the service disabled. That's, it seems to be doing well. I think that approach might be better because then you GSA and just doing the evaluation process won't be flooded with so many, you know, so many proposals. You'll go perhaps from 500 to, you know, 100, 150, which is still a big burden, but it'll be a little easier for them to manage. Nick Wakeman, thanks very much. As always, great to get your insight. Thanks, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. In tonight's event spotlight, the NatSec 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond virtual conference is happening this week. Tomorrow is day two. You'll learn how COVID-19's impacted the Coast Guard, State Department, and Maritime Administration. Speakers include State Department CIO Stuart McGuigan, Maritime Administrator Mark Busby, and the Atlantic Area and Pacific Area Commanders for the Coast Guard. It's available all week from 1 to 2 p.m. You can join our free webinar at FedInsider.com or tune in on WJLA 24-7 News. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.